with the coach. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Begin transmission of DCAT Radio. Welcome back to Geekhead Radio, your one-stop podcast for all your half-assed geek news regarding television, movies, and games. This is Preacher23, joined today by... B. Taylor, again. Yeah, uh, going to be stuck with him, which is fine. On this episode, we're going to talk about the new Star Wars Rebels cartoon. We're also going to talk about uh, one of the card games that's within Taylor's game collection called Gloom. And then finally, we're going to talk a bit about the new edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, that just came out... Well, the, the, the supplementary rules for that have been available online since uh, late July. But uh, the Player's Handbook came out earlier this month, and the Monster Manual will be coming out probably by the time that this uh, podcast is ready to air. So it's worth uh, mentioning that a little bit. Now, one thing that I want to talk about is uh, we had a couple of listeners who heard our last uh, podcast, heard us discuss Destiny, and uh, Taylor, what was it that they told you? Uh, the feedback I received is, in short, we made the game sound like a piece of crap, <laughs> but we said it was 8 out of 10 worth playing. So a little bit of incongruity there, and yeah. I think that's perfectly valid. Um <laughs> little more focus on the negative than the positive, I think, in the original review. And and one thing to note, um, it's not that we're overly negative people, but essentially we always want to be able to uh, give people a realistic expectation of, of a game or a product or anything like that. And if you only rave about the good, you're never going to know about the bad stuff that may turn you off from it. So... Um, I don't know, Taylor, do you think we need to be a little more positive? Uh, I, I didn't realize we were being <laughs> negative. Well, I think you're, you know, we definitely need to show both sides in any review. Uh, but I think in that specific case, you know, we kind of made assumptions that people would know about the positives or we didn't focus on them enough. So I think... That's a fair point. Well... Try to make sure we don't go off the rails with uh, criticism, um, although it's hardly you know, unique to us. I was looking at online reviews, and they were equally critical and didn't seem to really get to the positive aspects of the game with any regularity. So, I mean, I'll say this much. I'm still playing the game. Yes, it is a bit of a grind, like an MMO, um, but... Um, it hasn't quite burnt me out yet, but um, I see this as a game that, uh, you know, in, in a couple of days, Shadow of Mordor comes out, and I've decided to pick that up. And I imagine that Destiny will, will take back seat, but it'll still be a game that I periodically come back to to kind of work myself through. So um, I, I guess it ultimately, 
I don't see it as a game for myself that I'm going to be obsessively burning over every single day of the week. And, you know, some people may do that. And if that's the case, you may burn out on the content a lot faster. But, um, True. but still, I, I still give it a solid eight. And mm. I am enjoying the game. I, I, I don't have any major complaints out when I'm in the middle of playing it. It's usually when I'm thinking about it afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree. Uh, so now that we've clarified that uh, misconception we seem to have put across on our last podcast... Uh, as Aaron said, where he was going to talk about Star Wars Rebels cartoon. Yeah, and just and before that, just a reminder for those of you that uh, may be new to the podcast or um, may need a reminder. Uh, you can, if you ever need to get a hold of us, you can always reach us at geekheadradio at gmail dot com or Aaron A A R O N at geekheadradio dot com. You can also follow me so far on Twitter at geekhead Aaron, um, and then finally. If you want to post a comment about the, this podcast or have any questions or have any uh, requests, you can reach us on the D20 Radio forums, and we're under the subheader Geekhead Radio. So with that little bit of an obnoxious uh, self-promotion out of the way, let's, let's talk a little bit about Star Wars Rebels. Now, in, a, in past podcasts, um, we, we kind of gave the rant, um, or at least I gave the rundown, of what Star Wars Rebels is in comparison to what the Clone Wars cartoon was, and Taylor, you recently uh, you recently started watching Clone Wars uh, once it became available on Netflix, correct? Right. I almost never watch shows while they're on network or in production. I tend to catch up on Netflix or media. So yeah, I have a relatively fresh perspective. I should say that I haven't finished the series. I got kind of burned out and there was one specific thing that made me lose interest and in the third season they started playing episodes that were of events that had transpired before the series even began and it just totally threw me off and i never really got back into it okay i I will say this much season four is when it really takes a a turn towards um, more adult storytelling, so don't don't give completely up on it. But yeah, take a break if you need to. But yeah, one I think the main thing I enjoyed about it is they did make a significant effort to capture the feel and look of the films mm-hmm. compared to other Star Wars media, which doesn't always succeed at all. Um, so it, it felt more like an extension of the actual stories because of that. Okay. Um, and so far, uh, Star Wars Rebels hasn't quite aired um, on the Disney Channel. It will the the first uh, episode, Spark Rebellion, will air on October third, twenty fourteen. I'm not going to say what time because it's going to depend on which uh, time zone you are and if you're in the U.S. Uh, and then it, after that, it will run weekly on Disney XD beginning on October thirteenth. And just be aware, they will not be showing Spark Rebellion on XD. Um, immediately, so if you <clears throat> are trying to track that down for the purposes of your DVR, just realize it's going to be on two different channels uh, just for a very brief period of time. Now, Star Wars Rebels is um, once again uh, oversighting by uh, Dave Filoni, who is the same uh, showrunner for Clone Wars, so you already have a bit of a connection. But one of the things that, that instantaneously jumps out to me with Star Wars Rebels. Since this episode is now available online, if you've got the appropriate cable provider, you can watch it too. Uh, 
its art style is completely different than the Clone Wars. Now, back when the Clone Wars movie first came out, um, I do recall George Lucas had made a comment, and this is when the Clone Wars series was terrible. You know, that first that first movie was just wretched with trying to save Jabba the Hutt's son, Stinky, or whatever the hell. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> very forgettable episode. The only, the only purpose of ever watching that is if you just really want to see where Ahsoka came from. And, and, and it's barely there at that. Um, but Lucas had said that uh, he was inspired with this cartoon to recapture the look and feel of the old Thunderbirds cartoon. Or not, not cartoon. The puppets? The puppets. And if you look at the, um, the, the models of animation for the characters in uh, Clone Wars, particularly in the first couple seasons, if you look really carefully, there's, there's a very purposeful attempt to make them look like they're carved out of wood. Mm-hmm. If you look at the paint if you look at the color schemes, it's supposed to look like um hand-painted wood. And that's where you get kind of like a weird um kind of choppiness to the way that the characters have those sharper edges in that series than than what you would expect from a more realistic cartoon. Yeah, it's an interesting style choice for what's you know, ostensibly science fiction. Mhm. Um, some advantages and disadvantages there for sure. Yeah, but as they got as they went further along, they they refined the the uh, animation technique, so it didn't look quite as much like wood carved marionettes. This one does not have the same art style. Um, this has got more of a cartoon look, but it is it is more sophisticated than um, uh, Clone Wars. Uh, smoother textures. Uh, the one thing that I was a little disappointed with is they do show some Wookiees in this episode, and they look wretched. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't know what was going on. I don't know if they just didn't have enough time to animate the fur. Um, these characters look worse than they did in, in the Clone Wars, and they looked okay there. So yeah. I think if you're going to animate hair, your options are either to spend an inordinate amount of time and money making it look realistic, or... Just go the opposite and make it look like, you know, a Lego minifigure hair made of plastic that you put on top of someone's head. Yeah, essentially. If, you, if you're trying to do something interim that's incomplete, it's not going to look good. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that they'll, they'll refine that as time goes by, um, especially as they uh, get a little more adept at, at the programs that you're using. Uh, one thing that stood out uh, with Rebels that wasn't like the Clone Wars, is it had more more of a cartoony vibe. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, there was a little more jokes, um, a little more slapstick humor in there, but it wasn't, when I say slapstick, it wasn't ridiculous. Um, it, was, it was kind of expected. So most of it came from um, the main character that's supposed to be the, um, the proxy for the viewers, Ezra Bridger. And I'm sure his last name is not meant to be an allusion to bridging the prequel to the original trilogy. Not at all. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, some people, if you look at some of the uh, previews for the series, he looks like he's going to be your your stereotypical whiny little 14-year-old. Um, he's not as bad as I would have thought. And, and they already show a little bit of growth in the character from the get-go. Um, he does have a energy-based slingshot that he has on his wrist. 
Um, I see. Which which seems absolutely ridiculous, but it it happens so quickly. It operates more like a stun weapon, which. You know, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it's not a deadly weapon. Um, it's not my favorite little design in it, but I would imagine that if they're going to have the characters grow over time, that's probably going to be something he's going to retire in Season 2 or 3. Yeah, eventually he'll have to pick up the gun and... Well, he's already gotten his hands a little bit on a lightsaber because his his soon-to-be mentor is a character named Kanan, who is basically your cowboy cross between Han and Luke. Um, he's voiced by Freddie Prinze Jr., who, um, actually does a better job with the voice acting than he did in Mass Effect 3, thank God. But I don't know how much of that was just the direction. <laughs> um, you've got Hera, who's a Twi'lek, the one that's got the, the worm tails on the top of their head. She appear she's the leader of this rebel cell, and appears to be the love interest to Kanan. Um, you have Zeb, which is your big purple muscly guy, who's based off of... Ralph McQuarrie's uh, original sketches for Chewbacca. So if you've ever seen old concept art for Star Wars, which I'm sure you have, um, when you'd see this character, you'd go, oh, okay, I can see the influence. Yeah, conveniently easy to draw as well. Yes, very easy. <laughs> um, then you have Sabine, who is the uh, f- uh, teenage Mandalorian. She uh, is also appears to be the group's demolitionist and resident graffiti artist. And... As bad as that sounds, it's executed fairly well. Um, she's she's obviously going to become the love interest of Ezra, whether that's going to be reciprocated or not. I'm sure it will be at a later point. But um, her character was interesting for the for the pilot. But you know, everybody just seems to be presenting as they are meant to present at the moment. I'm sure the nuances will come up a little bit later. And then finally, they've got their own little. R2 unit that is a cobbled together um, obnoxious cantankerous droid named Chopper and uh, I can't <laughs> can't really describe him so much he reminds me of a character that uh, in a Star Wars game that I ran for you that uh, if, if given translation he probably sounds like Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> yeah, why would droids necessarily be polite I suppose yeah. they, they toil in slave conditions for their entire existence. Yeah. So so you said it rem- It felt more like a, a cartoon than, say, the Clone Wars. So you would say it's more geared toward a younger crowd then, uh, more of a something like, say, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which has more of a younger bent. Um, I would say that's probably safe to say. I mean, it's TVY7. You know, that shit doesn't matter anymore because when we were growing up, that meant something completely different. Um, it's it's not like the old G.I. Joe cartoons in the sense of, you know, where everybody's shooting at each other and ships get shot down, but there's always miraculously somebody who parachutes out and nobody ever gets killed. I mean, in the first three minutes, numerous stormtroopers take shots and they're dead. So um, there's... There's not that much of a dilution of it. Um, now, as for the kid factor, um, I was watching it with my soon-to-be six-year-old, and he got completely into it. And I think he got it, he got into it more than he did with the Clone Wars. He could watch mm-hmm. a few episodes here and there, but it didn't really hold his interest. This one seemed to have kind of that kinetic energy of the original uh, A New Hope, the 1977 mm-hmm. Star Wars. 
So would you, do you say it would cross, or would you say it crosses over to adults as well? Then, or does it fall short compared to some of the other Star Wars media? If you're one of these people that wants your Star Wars to be nothing but dark, 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 um, you'll be disappointed. Um, but with Clone Wars, come season four, that's when things start kind of taking a little bit more of an edge in the series. Anyway, um, I remember there's points later on in Clone Wars where I cringed going, oh my god, they're, they're, they're putting this on TV for a kid? I mean, it can get pretty brutal. I mean, there's, there's a later scene where, um, and I don't remember which season it is, like for example, Ahsoka is surrounded by a bunch of Mandalorian mercenaries, mm-hmm. and she's dropped down in the middle of them. She's crouched, and she stands up with her lightsabers, jumps up in the air and does a spin, and the next thing you see is just like a bunch of heads drop onto the floor. So, I mean... Well, none of them ducked, huh? Not of one? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was pretty quick. I, the way I described it, it's... Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so, was there a villain introduced? I... Yes. So far, um, in, in classic Star Wars uh, theme, um, you have the Imperial, uh, excuse me, Imperial Security Bureau, um, and you have Agent, and I kid you not, his last name is Callus, but it's K-A-L-L-U-S, so, you know... In other words, he loves teddy bears and and My Little Pony. He's a brony. Oh, I see. <laughs> Some crossover, huh? <laughs> um, no, he's actually one of the only competent um, Imperials that are there. And uh, as soon as he discovers that he's dealing with a what he believes a Jedi in hiding, um, he immediately calls the Inquisitor, who was just introduced in the last like hologram message at the very end. Mm-hmm. Of the episode, but if you've seen any of the promotional artwork, he's all over. So he's a. I'll nerd out here for a moment. He's an Utapawan, which is uh, one of the sharp teeth, tall, thin, white faced uh, aliens that were in Revenge of the Sith, where Obi Wan confronts General Grievous midway through the movie. Now, they seemed like they were pretty ineffectual based mm. on that, since they. affected. They surrendered their planet, pretty much, and they were completely non-combative. So this Inquisitor breaks that stereotype. Yeah, and, and, I, and we'll, we'll see how things go. I've seen a couple of scenes where there's a lightsaber battle, and he's obviously superior in his capabilities than either Ezra or Kanan. So um, they're they're trying to make him the next next big bad um, in the in the same vein as Darth Vader. Now, one interesting little bit, this is the rumor mill when it comes to Episode 7, so most of this is garbage, but um, they have the same storyline supervisors who's going to make sure that all of the new media that comes out stays coherent with the new movies as as they come out and any cartoons or comics or books. Um, There has been one mention that there's a possibility of a retcon of sorts where there'll be a flashback in Episode 7 that introduces the Inquisitors as an organization. Um, I don't know if they would really try and pull that because mm-hmm. I, I I can't recall a single instance where it was a smart move for somebody to suddenly go, oh yes, I remember the one time that I ran into one of these bad guys and try and expect yeah. everybody to just it, buy into yeah, it. Yeah, that would be a bit of a stretch, especially in the context of the original films. So. You would assume that based on the events of those films that an Inquisitor, should, had they existed, would have been involved at some point. Yeah. Or mentioned. Yeah. Uh, now, they're in the EU. 
and I mean they've always they've been in the EU for a long time. The first mention of a Inquisitor, I believe, was in the original Star Wars radio drama, and they mentioned a quit Inquisitor. So they've the concept of him has been around since 1979 or whenever that radio drama came out. But of course, they're just not mentioned in anything except for the books. Um, speaking of the books, this is your first real hardcore taste of the EU being wiped clean in just like a very, very minor way. But if you're a diehard EU fan for the expanded universe for Star Wars, this might bug you. But they, they visit Kessel in the um, in the, the premiere episode of Rebels. And I only know this because of all the role-playing game systems and everything like that. Kessel's always been described as this little rock of a world that's stuck between two black holes in the Kessel system. Oh, yeah. It has to be as dramatic as possible. Yeah. Yeah. This just looked like a Tatooine ripoff with a bunch of giant holes that were for the mining operations of the Spice. So um, it, it, it wasn't as fantastical as it was in the EU, and I'm sure somebody's going to be like, No! Kessel is... It can't be like that! And it's, and it's, and it's run by the Colicoids! And, you know, all the crap that I mm-hmm. unfortunately read on Wiki, Wikipedia a long time ago. Ugh. Yep, you'll, you'll have to get over it, then. <laughs> Unnamed EU geek. Yeah, well, we got a couple listeners, but... Um, I mean, it's minor. I mean, hopefully that's not something that really chaps your hide. Well, any final thoughts then on Star Wars Rebels, where it's been, where it's going, uh, where you'd like it to go? Um, at this point, um, I know that I, I, what I what I would like to see in the series, and I think a lot of people have said this online. I would like to see some connection to some of the characters that survived the Clone Wars series, um, and tie them into this event, like Ahsoka. Um, mm. No, she doesn't end up dying. Uh, sorry, spoiler, but she walks away from the Jedi Order. And nobody knows what happened to her. Now, um, the interesting thing is is that uh, Lucasfilm has released some of the storyboards and the storyline arcs that they had planned for the Clone Wars before it got canceled mm-hmm. um, when the Disney buyout occurred. And apparently um, there is a little bit of a mention of what happened to Ahsoka, but I didn't have time to look at it. So, But I'm sure all that's going to go out the... Yeah, I'm sure if if it were notable, you would have heard about it through the grapevine. And yeah. So whether they want to use a character they don't necessarily have the full, you know, I, that that may be doubtful, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, one thing that that I did uh, get teased uh, from one of the panels at the Salt Lake Comic Con that I was at is, I guess, uh, Jedi Master Luminara, one of the green faced uh, Luminarians. She really is only visible briefly for. Um, Attack of the Clones, but she played a more prominent role in the Clone Wars cartoon. Um, apparently she's in, in an Imperial prison system and there's a rescue operation. So they do have some characters already that they're kind of pulling from that. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I, I think ultimately um, I wouldn't be shocked if you don't see or hear anything about any of the surviving clones or anything along those lines. Because the Stormtroopers are obviously back to being conscripted soldiers versus being clones. Hmm. Okay. So... So they can't hit anything. <laughs> See, I thought that was a missed opportunity. Is that <laughs> The reason Stormtroopers were awful is because they're still clones, but they're degrading over each generation. Um, I've heard some people say that if you, if, if you really take it down to the point that episode five, four, excuse me, episode four, New Hope, and episode three, Revenge of the Sith, 
Um, it's a 20-year gap between these two. And Star Wars Rebels mm-hmm. takes place 15 years after uh, Revenge of the Sith. So, at that point, the clones are already grown very, very rapidly. They reached adulthood by age 10. I think it was mentioned in Attack of the Clones. And so you would have probably figure most of them have continued that aging process and have all died mm-hmm. out. Um, I'm sure that they can... Uh, yeah, there's got to be an explanation yeah. somewhere. And it'd be easy enough to bring up. Yeah. Even if it's just a passing comment. Oh, yeah, now we... we... I remember those clones? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they were expensive. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's a bummer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Darn. All right. Um, okay, so, yeah, that, that wraps it up for this. I just want to see... Uh, see if they can uh, combine things together and and um it's if you've got a kid who's into star wars if you're a parent uh this is a show that to me is worth watching with your kids so if you're an adult and you're a huge star wars nerd check it out if you're kind of in the middle yeah wait wait a little bit longer like taylor does Mm -hmm. and wait for the first season to hit on netflix or the equivalent thereof probably netflix i think they have a deal with disney if i recall yeah so all right fair enough okay Right, moving on to the next segment of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a card game called Gloom. Gloom! Gloom. It's it's gloomy. Yes, well, <laughs> indeed. Uh, so, just a little bit of publisher background. This is, a, this is a game published by Atlas Games, designed by Keith Baker. Um, it's a card game. It'll cost $15 to $20, depending on where you buy it from. Now, one reason I wanted to... to talk about this game is to contrast it a little bit with the game we talked about on our last podcast, Eldritch Horror. We didn't mention the price point on that, and I think that bugger was like 60 bucks. Well, it will vary a lot depending on where you get it from. I think retail is 60 or 70 yeah. So this is less than half the cost. Uh, not This is a competitive game, unlike our, the cooperative game. Uh, it's going to play a lot faster as well, so if the thought of playing a two to three hour game with a forty page rule book is so frightening you'll never even consider it. You know, this is something else that I wanted you know, this is the type of game I wanted to bring up as well, so yeah. we don't spend every podcast talking about games that ninety percent of people might not play. Uh, so some elements of this game are well Well first off, let's talk about the art. I mean it's it's got an Edward Gorey aesthetic to it mm-hmm. so it, if anybody knows who edward gory is uh his his biggest claim to fame is the opening uh montage cartoon to the was it masterpiece the- no not masterpiece theater um what the hell is that show on pbs mystery mystery that's what it was <laughs> yep. so if you don't if that doesn't paint a picture in your mind's eye pull out your phone and check it out on your phone's browser uh, but, yeah, the art is a hand-drawn, black-and-white style. Uh, the characters have a kind of gaunt, uh, thin, with a- accents Edward of the face. Which is part of the game's conceit. Um, each player controls a family of five members. Um, the goal of the game is to make as many of your family members as miserable as possible. Um <laughs> uh, while making sure that your opponent's family members are less miserable than yours. Um, and then ultimately, once they're as miserable as they possibly can get, kill them off before anybody can make their life better. So mechanically, how you make that work is... Uh, well, one thing that is critical to mention is this game uses 
transparent plastic cards as opposed to traditional cardboard cards. Yeah. This is necessary for the way you play the game. You have events you can play on top of family members, either yours or your opponents. Uh, here's an example. Contracted consumption. <laughs> uh, the way the card's designed, on the left side, there are three potential spaces for a modifier. Uh, these are points, basically. Uh, the more points that, well, the negative points in this case, since you want to make them miserable, are what you want to accrue on your people. Uh, so this one's a negative 15 on the top and negative 15 on the bottom, so that's a pretty high-ranking card. Right. So, one peculiarity of the game is each card you play can overwrite the one underneath it. For example... Um, if I played Contract to Consumption on my relative Lord Slogar. <laughs> now, that's pretty miserable, right? He has negative 15 plus negative 15, negative 30. Um, so let's say, I put, and then I have this card I have in my hand, was Distressed by Dysentery. <laughs> um, so this is a negative 15 and negative 10, so not quite as miserable, but uh, the negative 10 is in a blank space that wasn't taken up by the consumption card. So now he has a high, very high misery score of 40. Um, so if I like that score and I want to lock it in, I can play a death card and kill this character, ensuring his misery. Uh, now my opponent may decide he doesn't want him to be as miserable, so he could play cards. Some have less, lesser negative modifiers, so there's okay. even positive events. Like, had a picnic in the park. <laughs> so, this this actually would have a significant effect because there's a plus 10 modifier and a plus 5 modifier, which not only add a positive score, they overwrite the negative modifiers. So, Lord Slogar would have gone from a negative 40, which is incredibly miserable, to zero. Just because, by one picnic. Yeah. Hey, you know what? The picnic's a great equalizer for dysentery and consumption. Yeah, I, I'm sure if yeah, <laughs> suffering from dysentery, a picnic in the park would be the right, the perfect remedy. And then, of course, uh, the, the flavor text at the bottom says, A jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and a pack of wolves in the woods. <laughs> so the game continues on in this manner, with people playing awful things, ideally on their own characters, and happy things on their opponents. Uh the strategy comes in on trying to time when to kill the characters, when to kill your opponent's characters. Um, for example, if the character we were discussing, Lord Slogar, um, if I were the opponent and I saw that he was now at a neutral level, I might just decide to play a kill on him and mm -hmm. get him out of the way, um, as opposed to playing a kill on my own character. Uh, so there's a little bit of back and forth. Uh, you'll definitely get annoyed when someone plays a card on top of <laughs> a character you've been building up. Um, so that's the summary. Um, and, the, and the interesting thing, too, is that if you love the Lovecraftian feel of everything, there is a um, an alternate version of the game, which is Cthulhu Gloom, which I own. And in that one, the, the mechanics are pretty much identical, but what you're trying to do is slowly drive your family members insane before killing them off. And um, I don't have it with me at the moment, but I know that they've got, like, the um, the uh, the Dunwich Horror family. What is that, the Watleys? Mm -hmm. So you have the Watleys as one family. You have um, the uh, Herbert West family. 
a group of people from uh, the um, reanimator story. Uh, well, that's yeah. not what it's called, but that's what the movie was called. Um, and in a couple of others, I think you've got uh, the deep ones. You have the people from Innsmouth as, as another family. So um, it's an interesting, fun little quick game. Um, and then you also have a, uh, overall event cards that uh, you can play um, in the course of the game as well that can kind of have similar effects like Wipeout. Because uh, each of the cards, um, some of them have a little um, identifier um, in the lower right-hand corner that um, may have some strategic effect uh, depending on, on an event card that you play. But we don't have one pulled out right now, so I'm not going to ask you to dig around in there and then have to edit this out. Fair enough. <laughs> So, uh, as I mentioned, that's the the summary of the game. A couple considerations if you're interested or you're thinking of picking this up. Uh, It's a two to four player game. Realistically, it's not very good with two players. Yeah. Uh, I would say three or ideally four. It can't really support more than that, so keep that in mind. Um, Games will tend to run depending on how things go anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes it really depends on who you're playing with and what cards you draw yeah first 40 the first time you play it'll probably be a lot longer second time as everybody's kind of gotten over the initial novelty and figured out the rules a little more clearly and can establish a strategy it'll probably go Mm -hmm. to 15 minute games Um, and the as we mentioned the cards are transparent which enables the gameplay a couple drawbacks of that is there's no card back Mm-hmm. So you can at least have a reasonable idea of what your opponent's holding unless you go out of your way to hide the cards or take some other measures. Um, plus, due to their construction, you can't shuffle them aggressively. So yeah, if you have a break. shuffler in your family... Uh, <laughs> or, or in your circle of friends. Yes. <clears throat> be, be careful. <laughs> um, and... Uh... Another slightly annoying feature with with the the type of uh, translucent um, card is that um, if you get too many cards stacked on one character, they do not want to line up easily. They'll kind of slide all over the place. And so you definitely want to have a stable table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another thing to mention, too, as we were discussing, the the cards stack on one another and it events below the current card have relevance but if you get to say five or six cards deep i mean you can only see so much through this plastic so yeah. you you get to the point where it's blurry and you keep it can be a little hard to read not much way around that with unless they hit used glass but um yeah. and i and i think if you want to see how this game plays um um, I could spend a moment and and find it, but I do believe it was also reviewed on Will Wheaton's tabletop game through Geek and Sundry. Um, and so you can just look that up um, on YouTube um, and see how the gameplay goes. I just wanted to comment a little more on the theme. Um, it's obviously a dark theme, but there is some tongue-in-cheek. Um, you know, you're, it's, I wouldn't say it's evil or gory yeah so if you're concerned about things like that it's more of a exaggerated woe is me mm-hmm. um and hopefully some of the examples we gave show that you're not supposed to take the misery and murder of these people too seriously yeah it's pretty tongue-in-cheek and mm-hmm. so it's, it's just more it's more entertaining than it is anything else 
Um, so as the game advertises appropriate for ages 13 and up. Uh, in this case, I'd probably say that's reasonably accurate. Um, you, young children who can't read well would struggle. Um, there's some timing issues, and mm-hmm. the strategy, I think, would elude someone much younger than that. Yeah. And and if you've got somebody who's young, like my son, who um, can take uh, some of the backstabbing a little too personally, um, keep that in mind, too, because this, this is a game that... You could theoretically make enemies with, uh, but I don't think it's going to have any long-lasting effects like a, a family destroyed by Monopoly. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, do you have any ideas about what you want to cover next uh, time? I think what I'll do next time, uh, I was, I'm going to touch on the another card game, The Sentinels of the Multiverse. Ooh, I love that one. Uh, we'll talk about that more in depth, obviously, next time, but... Uh, this is a kind of a in between of the two games we just discussed already. It's a card game, but it's cooperative. Uh, we're going to talk about some game concepts, expansions, customization that are becoming more prevalent in the tabletop realm. All right. Okay. And now we will talk about the game of the most evil intent of any game that was developed in the seventies: Dungeons and Dragons, the game that many over-the-top Christian fundamentalists uh, really got overly concerned about a bunch of nerds sitting in the basement mm-hmm. playing Oh, yeah, this was a big deal. They even, you know, they made, Tom Hanks made a movie where he went crazy <laughs> from D&D. Mazes and monsters! I mean, that's oh. how big of a, a deal this was back in the day for a, a handful of people. Grant, granted, uh, what was it? What, what was... Uh, Tom Hanks's claim to fame was bosom buddies at that point. Yes, he had not realized his full potential, but nevertheless, if Tom Hanks w- took it seriously, so should you. Uh, and I um, and I believe it's Dark Dungeons is a movie that just got released online. If you really want to torture yourself, Jack Chick, who uh, was a uh, cartoonist who created little Chick tracks, which were just terrible, terrible. Um, I don't even know how to describe them. They were like uh, the most uh, fear-mongering comics about uh, the dangers that that young Christian people uh, were facing. He created an entire series on Dungeons & Dragons and how it was a subversive game to get people into the occult. And so the the comic strip was just terrible. And they they filmed a movie... Um, and I think it was the same guys who did Dorkness Rising, which I couldn't get through. It was just a little too much for me. But uh, it's almost scene for scene a depiction of that comic. And mm-hmm. so you have these, uh, you have the dark goth kids who are um, who are the cool kids that are um, running the Dungeons and Dragons game, and, and of course somebody's character dies, and and so they commit suicide because they can't disconnect from the game. So that's the <laughs> sidebar. The eighty. That's kind of the his legacy of D&D. In reality, it's just kind of a Tolkien rip-off yeah. where you go fight monsters in implausible dungeons. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's the most successful pen-and-paper role-playing game by any measure. Brand recognition, sales, movies, people, people played. So, mm-hmm. it, so stuff is to say that, that they couldn't have people playing the same editions that, that came out back in the 70s. So now we're on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, and um, I first started playing Dungeons & Dragons, I think I got dragged into it when I was 8 years old. 
um, by um, a close friend's older brother. And uh, my my memories of that it were completely right. different. Oh, yeah, that did. That sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons pretty much in every edition except for fourth edition. Um in, in some capacity or another. And this, uh, the 5th edition is kind of a return to roots because 4th uh, edition Dungeons & Dragons was not seen very uh, well by the vast majority of gamers. Um, now, I never, like I said, I never got to play it, but Taylor, you kind of uh, had an opportunity to play that system, well, read that system. Right, yeah, it was curious, so I, I found the books by visiting some sort of buccaneer bay online. <laughs> uh it seems like the intent was to create a crossover between the pen and paper realm and computer RPGs. Uh, so, so much emphasis was placed on abilities and stats and character balance that any sort of imagination or getting away from the rules were was difficult, if not impossible. Um, the rules were also designed to all but require the use of tabletop miniatures, yeah, um, which are fine as an aid, but to outright require them is another thing entirely. There's some pretty twisted cross-marketing. So I think that is why, by most people's estimation, 4th uh, edition was a flop. Yeah. Um, I haven't looked at their sales numbers, but from what I understand, they weren't great <laughs> as a charitable term yeah i don't know anyone personally who enjoyed it so uh kind of taking a back step from that that failure they've come out with fifth edition yeah it's also known as D next um now for the last couple of years they've been doing an open beta where uh people could uh get the rules revisions online and play test them and then kind of discuss what they liked and what they didn't like, and so they had a lot more player interaction with this system than they did previously, and that was probably due to the fact that a very similar thing happened when 4th uh, edition Dungeons & Dragons came out. Um, Paizo, who had been doing their dungeon and their separate dragon magazine lines, had brought uh, bought the rules for what was then 3.5 edition Dungeons & Dragons, and created Pathfinder, uh, which is more of the same. I mean, it's it, it's it's pretty much Dungeons and Dragons, but just with a slightly different name. And so that system worked fairly well, but it got bought. It, it suffered from the same problems of Fourth Edition, where it got bogged down in feats and oh, yeah, specialization. They they definitely went overboard on the number of books you had to buy and yeah there's power creep and uh yeah to, to there were so many options that it was there was no place to jump in and start if you weren't in there from day one yeah and 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 if you were going to make a first level character you better have the the books ahead of time of what prestige class you wanted to work towards because you had to have an exact type of skill points and it, it, it just became more math-keeping, and uh, it dragged things down considerably. Whereas 1st Edition Dungeons & Dragons uh, was a lot more abstract in the sense, but also at the same time was so technically overhanded. Um, they were not very accessible whatsoever. I think that's one of the primary reasons why Dungeons & Dragons for a long time was seen as 
the exclusive realm of the socially inept geek <laughs> because uh, the rules uh, were overly verbose and um, <laughs> not very clear to follow. Uh, Gary Gygax, you know, breast his soul. Um, he meant well, but man, he was a terrible writer. <laughs> um, those those books are just just horribly cobbled together, and you can't find anything easily. So luckily, that changed over time. But um, with that open beta, one of the things that the designers of Dungeons and Dragons had been mentioning was that they wanted to go back more to the roots. They wanted to steer away from that over-specialization and math-crunching that was necessary. And uh, and this game seems to be a fine return to form. Um, it's it, To me, just knowing what else was available, this system already seems far more accessible. Um, to begin with, there's not they really address the power creep. Um, power creep is basically where every level your character just becomes almost equally exponentially powerful in order to just solely be able to fight the next tier of creatures. And with your bonuses, it would become easier to hit, so thus you had to fight monsters that were harder to hit. And so you ended up basically always falling into the same category of it on a 20-sided die, you always need to roll a 15 or higher to hit. That's what it always boiled down to. It didn't matter how many numbers were thrown in there. That's that was kind of the 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 I don't know algorithm the the, the numerical the, yeah, the, random generation. Intent. Um, the problem was there were so many exceptions and modifiers that would over time the optimal paths to development started to come to light. You have to take this power or your character is behind. Yeah. Um, so that's one that's what we were talking about with these this escalation and mm-hmm. power creed so with this uh with this system one of the first things that they did is they they wiped out the automatic number progression from level to level so if you're a if you're a fighter your classic you have access to your classic character classes that you've always had in dungeons and dragons you have the barbarian you have the cleric you have the fighter the ranger the druid, the rogue, the sorcerer, the wizard, and then you have a warlock, which the warlock seems to be pretty much the same thing, but instead of... It's flavor text, but essentially it it, it has a pact with either a demon, devil, angel, yep. old one. Yeah. We, we assure you that wizards, sorcerers, <laughs> and warlocks are all very distinct in D&D. You cannot get those mixed up. You absolutely can't, because if you do, you're going to have a, one hell of a conversation. So what they have now is, is is proficiency. You have a proficiency bonus. So for from levels 1 to 4, your proficiency bonus is plus 2. From levels uh, 5, well, I guess technically it's 1 through 3, and then 4 through 7, your bonus is plus 3, and then it's plus 4. And it only goes... It goes Slowly. So instead of one character being highly specialized in, oh, this is our frontline fighter, then, oh, you wanted to cast spells? Well, too bad, you have to go stand in the back. Oh, you wanted to wield a sword? Well, you're going to have a terrible mm-hmm. plus to strike. They killed that in such a way that um, makes it so you can create what you want as a character more easily without taking a massive penalty. Um, hit points do creep up as as usual, but uh, pretty much the creatures that I've 
since the monster manual is not out yet, I can't look at what the you know the target numbers to hit, which is called armor class that you need to roll on the twenty sided die in order to hit the creature. What you're going to be up against, but um, it actually makes it so you know when you hit fifth level, a goblin is still just maybe just still as difficult to hit as it was at first level. It doesn't suddenly you know not it's not capable of defending itself against somebody who's arbitrarily fifth level. Yeah, one thing to clarify for people not familiar with D and D, if first a first level monster versus the, this fifth level character we're talking about is a zero chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the monster is literally a waste of your time to fight. Uh, I mean, picture you know the most over the top Lord of the Rings battle sequences where hundreds of orcs die by the single hero. That's kind of where you're at. Yeah, and it gets worse from there. Yeah. Uh, so if the lower level monsters are still at least an obstacle, that's an interesting change. Um, and and you've got your classes, uh, or excuse me, your your skills. And so in these skills, instead of having to put skill points in. Um, you're either proficient in it or you're not, and you use that proficiency bonus. Um, and so you have a better, you know, not one person is going to always automatically be the one go-to person. And you can do things untrained, and there's a couple of other things that go along with that. But one of the key features that I noticed that this system has over any of the previous editions of Dungeons & Dragons is instead of having all these ridiculous bonuses or penalties that you can have from lying down from being standing up, from running, from being on higher ground, from uh, you know firing into melee, you have one or two things that can happen. You can either be advantaged or you can be disadvantaged. And when you're advantaged in combat or in a skill check or anything like that, what you do is you roll two 20-sided die and you pick the higher number and that's your result. If you're disadvantaged, you roll two 20-sided dies, pick the lower die and that's your result. That's it. So, yeah, definitely a lot simpler than adding in bonuses and penalties to your end result. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a little too simplified for certain things. Uh, the, the sound, just ma- mathematically, the, the, ad, the advantage is pretty big, and so it would be the mm-hmm. disadvantage. So it might not make sense, say, if you're you know, wet to roll disadvantage die. And yeah. To, <laughs> because that would be pretty significant. But... As a narrative tool, it's definitely simpler and doesn't require as much out of the players. It doesn't require as as, as much cons- consultation on tables to figure out every single potential modifier that can come into play. Yeah, One factor about the previous D&D games that we had talked about is they were perceived as you know, the ultimate geekdom. And part, I think part of the reason for that is... It required a commitment out of everyone playing. The player, in addition to knowing the rules, you have to remember things like that plus two with this weapon. and mm-hmm. the, the, It required a lot of knowledge and patience out of the players in addition to the, the person running the game, the dungeon master. So would you say that this edition it would be a little more casual? Um, you wouldn't need to know as much to On lower levels. play? On lower levels, um, it's usually when you hit about third or fourth level that the complexity starts coming into it, because each class has different paths that it can take that it, that it has listed in the books, and I'm sure that also makes it so future uh, supplement books if if you you know want to have more options to your ranger instead of 
going down the archery path or going down the dual weapon fighting path or the tracking path. You can kind of mix and match between those three. Um, you're not married to one group as you go along. And so you can get uh, quite a bit of diversity that comes along from that. You know, one group may, you know, one path will have a significant bonus to using longbows. But that doesn't mean that they can't fight with a hand-to-hand weapon. They're just not going to be as good as the guy who's solely focused on two weapons, for example. Um, and that and that seems to be kind of the continuation. There's some supplemental rules, like fighters get a discipline die, which, um, depending on, on what level you are, that can be a six-sided die, or an eight-sided, or a ten-sided, etc. And... There's different abilities that you can pick from as you go up mm-hmm. in, in level that certain situations can come up and you can add that discipline die to your attack roll so you can just barely squeak by if you just barely miss or you can do a little bit of extra damage if you really need it. But so it's more that starts fitting into what I what I heard is the fourth edition um, powers and abilities where um, you know you have certain abilities that you can kick off once per game or once per round or once per day or once per mm-hmm. campaign. Um, and it kind of has that element to it, but it's not so complex that if you're just somebody who goes, I'm going to sit down and play, you won't be able to figure it out and you'll get bogged down with trying to make sure that you followed the exact path. I'm sure a number cruncher is going to come out there and say, no, this is the optimal path because you know, there's right. always, there's always that. And Munchkinism. how much that will affect the game remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll need the supplemental books, the monster manual especially, to see how hard it is to actually defeat the monster. So yeah. from what you described, it sounds like in terms of setting and such, it's playing it safe for the most part. You have elves and dwarves, and the elves are skinny and they shoot arrows, yep. and the dwarves have beards. Yep. Anything surprising or... Um, so far, nothing has really come off as overly surprising. Um, there, there is one interesting thing, and this is something I've seen a lot of bloggers talk about when it came to, for, uh, excuse me, to the new edition of the rules, is that they really try to make sure there's not a gender or racial uh, advantage in any of the characters. Um, they even go as far as, as 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 mentioning in gender that even if your character is male but identifies as female, um, that's that's a choice that you can make. And the fact that it's even in there as a paragraph um, is just talking about alternative uh, sexual preferences or sexual identification. Um, it's that in and of itself is just kind of interesting from the standpoint of seeing how uh, social justice movements, and I don't mean that in a negative way has uh, kind of changed the dynamic. Because yeah, the original would, D&D was all about, you know, if you're a female character, you have a chainmail bikini plus four! Yeah, it would... That's <laughs> definitely There's definitely a progression there. Um, how important or necessary that is, I don't know. I, I tend to find D&D's probably better without significant mm-hmm. sexual elements in it. Yeah. God, uh, please. Yeah. <laughs> just imagine sitting around with a bunch of friends trying to imagine sexual scenarios it just it's probably as bad as you think you're imagining right now um i have i have very distinct memories of of a old player that will never be named in our high school gaming who was notorious for 
uh, torturing us with sexual exploits in the game. Yeah. Needless to say, once that became a priority, that person stopped getting invited. <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of a, an aside or throwaway, mm-hmm. and it's not going to impact anyone's experience much yeah. one way or the other. Now, the, but to really talk about the one thing that's that that seems different, but um, some people may love it, some may, people may hate it. One of the things on character creation now, they have uh, a system called your background. And based on that's kind of based on what was your character doing before they decided to have their life of adventure. And that can be they were an acolyte and they were in, in a religious order. It could be that they were a street thug. It could be that they were a charlatan or a thief or a fisher or anything like that. And once you pick that background, that gives you access to different skills that aren't necessarily skills that are going to be game-breaking, but it flushes out your character a little bit more. And then they have a bunch of random tables underneath them uh, for four different concepts. You have personality traits, and so it's got a table, a personality trait. So if you're struggling as a person Mm -hmm. to go, this is just a fighter to me, you can flush them out a little bit more with some assistance. Then you have their ideals, then any bonds that they may have, and then any character flaws. And these are all on separate tables. And the nice thing about I see that is that it, it, it helps... Um, an introductory player into the system see their character as something more than just a piece of paper and it also allows the dungeon master to play off of those aspects that I think just is, is slightly interesting it's not anything revolutionary I've seen that in other systems yeah, before but for D&D because it's, it, forever it was and I think I talked about this a couple times definitely built on fantasy tropes especially yeah. from Tolkien if you were a dwarf fighter you were Gimli Every time. Every time. Uh, So if they're making some sort of effort to at least push away from that, that's uh, somewhat of a departure for Mm -hmm. D&D. But like you said, that's something that... And that that actually kind of brings up a point. I think part of the problem that D&D had before is they weren't paying enough attention to what was going on in other games. Yeah. Kind of assuming that they were the the top dog. You're going to buy our product because you know... So if, where the masters yeah, if they're looking at other systems and taking into account some of the concepts that have been put forward in games the last 10 or 15 years, and that's yeah, definitely a positive for them, I would say. And another uh, tidbit to put in there, I've, I've been playing this a little bit uh, with my son, my wife, and my mother-in-law. Um, my son's been obsessed with watching me play role-playing games, and you know Taylor's been a part of that either online or up close and personal. That sounded wrong. Anyway, um, <laughs> he's wanted to play for a while, and he, under you know, with everything that's around, he knows the concept of Dungeons & Dragons. He's seen it, he's looked at the artwork, and he wanted really to play. And it's just not an easy game to just walk into. Um, I didn't give him enough credit. Um, we did the beginner starter uh, set, Um while his his role playing techniques are pretty, you know they're pretty uh, green, and and what you would expect from a five year old, um, he's picking up on the rules really quickly, and the fact that we don't need to sit there and and pause to give him a, um, all of the modifiers that could possibly come into effect that affects each concept of his battle, we can just run through. And he can just describe things and imagine it a lot more clearly. And we've avoided using the miniatures, and he's been able to follow it pretty well. Mm. And I think when you don't have the miniatures, the imagination 
um, has to take over and things become a lot more dynamic than just standing, you know, sitting over a table, looking at a map that's drawn out on the, on the table and moving a miniature around. I mean, you can get a lot more creative when you're sitting there going, well, I can move 40 feet, but you know, let me, let me run an attack. And, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip off of the wall and slash down. And then you don't need to worry about like all these, modifiers of well technically you don't you can't do that you can just go for it you say the game would be easy to play remotely from people were in different houses or different states um if you're doing it like on roll 20 dot net or something like that it you could use the miniatures in the in the in the maps because that's kind of built in and i'm sorry if you want to know more about roll 20 dot net you need to go back to like episode seven of the podcast (laughs) um which is a terrible podcast but still um, it it would work really really well, but if you're heavily reliant on on exact movements, you can do that. So if you've got the map and and everybody wants to know how the exact increments that they move, um, you know you can do that, or you can just talk online like on Google Chat and just accept the dice rolls and mm-hmm. just go with pure imagination if that's what you want to go with. So it depends on mm-hmm. the players. All right, so Bring at Home, newest edition of D&D. Would you say this is the best edition of D&D ever? <laughs> um, not yet. No, I, I, to I, be I, determined? To be determined. I mean, yeah. I'm playing with a five-year-old, so, you know. Yeah, there's still a few variables. Um, yeah, and one reason I haven't really done much about it myself is it's not complete. Mm, Realistically, God. if... And they've done this for years, but if you want the full experience, you need to get the dungeon. Monster Manual and the pending Dungeon Master Guide, which won't be out till Christmas. December 9th, I think, is what it was. It was um, November 19th, but now they pushed it back further. So keep in mind, uh, you're probably you're going to need three books at a retail of 75 to $90. Yeah. Um, uh, it, but, it, it, get them on Amazon. I'm sorry. I mean, if you want to go and, and do your... Uh, friendly local gaming store and you know patronize them and give them some money at full price you know go ahead and do it but i mean honestly you know at at that price point it's brutal um this isn't this isn't something a 12 year old's going to be able to save up their allowance money and 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 buy easily um you can do the the starter set which is 20 bucks and it gives you dice and it gives you character pre-made characters and an adventure to go with so if you want to test it out that's the safest way to go yeah because you'll need the dice and some of those materials might help mm-hmm. um, so I, maybe they've out they've outsmarted me their marketing's already thought of that and come out with a starter set to make it more palatable to first timers and your first the first taste is free but then the rest is Yep. Overly expensive. So maybe on a future podcast we'll revisit D&D 5th Edition when it's actually complete and all the books are out. Wizards! And uh, see if that opinion's changed. Yep. All right. Well, I think at this point that pretty much wraps everything up. Is there any closing thoughts or uh, things that you wanted the listeners to know about? No. Uh, we talked about new cartoon, card game, new role-playing game. Uh, Maybe next time we'll touch on some video games. Uh, you mentioned Shadows of Mordor. Yeah, I'll have I'll that comes out on Tuesday, so I'll be able to play that for a week or so and and give a little bit of a review on that. All right, sounds good. All right, well, thanks again and uh, f- for listening to Geekhead Radio and uh, you know 
if you want to interact with us, please, you know, check us out on uh, on the Facebook page, which is just under Geekhead Radio, or interact us with us through email at geekheadradio at gmail.com, or you can reach me at Aaron at geekheadradio.com. And until then, don't just embrace your inner geek, make love to it. This is Taylor. Catch you later. Bye. Terminate transmission of Geekhead Radio.